Hello, it's Pete here, and welcome to EdTech Innovators. In this episode, we answer the following questions. Number one, can technology solve the student debt crisis? Number two, what is blockchain? Number three, what is crypto? And number four, what is DeFi or decentralized finance? What does all of this have to do with education and why should anyone care? Well, this week we have an interview with Ted Zippoy, the Chief Innovation Officer at Scholar. Please enjoy. Hello, Ted. Ted Zippoy uh, from uh, Scholar uh, with a zero, not an O. Uh, you must explain that if that's okay with you. Yeah, happy to do so. So Scholar, the name of our project, though we like to think that the zero represents the student debt going to zero, or hopefully more students graduating with less debt. So that's our, our mission and vision in our title there. Oh, that's brilliant. So that, that's really good to hear. Um, before we get started, so you're, you're currently in Minneapolis, aren't you? Yep. So um, grown, born and raised in Minnesota, grew up in a very small town of around I think I graduated with around 40 people. So small town world moved to Minneapolis, but have had the opportunity to do some traveling, but currently based in Minneapolis. Fantastic. So from one um, music city to another, I'm from Liverpool, home of the Beatles, and you're from the home of Prince, of course. I'm a little biased. I know they say Minnesota is you know, known for Prince, but I'm actually a big Bob Dylan fan. So ah. that's, that's my Minnesota musician. Well, that unites us because Bob Dylan recently um, with, took part in a Beatles tour in, in Liverpool. He just, he just appeared anonymously and just uh, took part in one of these Beatles tours, uh, which is interesting. Uh, also, one of my favorite films, uh, Fargo, is based uh, in the Twin Cities isn't it? in Minnesota. Yeah, it, that's a, another kind of interesting connection is that's where I, I did my undergrad was at North Dakota State University in Fargo, North Dakota. So that's, right. uh, if anyone hears my accent and thinks of the movie, it's because uh, that's where I went to. So, <laughs> ah, well, you're not going to say yar. <laughs> <laughs> no promises. Yeah. Uh, the accent comes from uh, the Swedish immigrants, I, I believe, doesn't it? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Fascinating. Right. So let's, uh, so now we've, um, I suppose, orientated each other. Um, let's start talking about your work. So before we do any of that, uh, one of the overarching themes or, or developing themes of this podcast has been uh, at what I call the pandemic pivot. So ways in which um, EdTech uh, innovators have really innovated bec because of COVID. Opportunities have been presented to them and they have, in some cases, really pivoted their ideas and I suppose really thought on their feet um, for the benefit of their, 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 their businesses and their customers. So um, can you tell us something about that? Absolutely. You know, a um, little bit of context about our project. We're actually, we have an existing what we call Web2 or the, the web that's familiar to, to all of us platform called scholarful.com. Here it's a scholarship aggregator. So instead of students searching, you know, far and wide for different solutions on, uh, you know, different kind of scholarships from different foundations, it's all in one place. We like to call it like the dating app for scholarships. Fill out your application once and by clicking one button, you can apply to them very quickly. Um, that obviously, um, you know, has shifted with the, you know, the COVID pandemic and the COVID shift um, as, as far as education has changed. Um, traditionally, we were focusing in majority on four-year degrees. So, uh, you know, you think of university, it's four years to go to your undergrad, some may pursue graduate, but we've actually seen a shift uh, away from that in a few ways, especially in this era of the COVID shift. 
Um, the world I live in, we call it Web3, call it crypto, blockchain. Um, we've seen a large shift towards what's called certificate-based learning. So instead of getting uh, you know, a four-year degree, this is where you might do a coding boot camp to kind of get your feet under you in coding. And then you do a lot of learning on the job. So it's instead of a four-year degree, you'd be getting these different eight to um, eight weeks to traditionally six-month kind of certifications and build your resume that way. Um, so that's kind of an exciting shift. And we're excited to potentially be a scholarship or funding partner for those programs as nothing exists today for them. Uh, and the other really interesting shift that I'm sure we'll have some opportunity to discuss is kind of what does remote education look like? Um, I think we all have heard the term Zoom University and some people really enjoyed it, but I know there's a lot of learners that didn't feel as immersed as they would in a classroom. Um, something that's kind of the happy medium between Zoom University and a traditional university uh, is this emerging space called Met the metaverse or these different kind of virtual reality learnings. Just to kind of define metaverse in the, the Web3 world, essentially what this is uh, is most people think of it as more so almost like a video game feel, but it's a kind of a social network. So think of, you know, uh, Facebook meets the Sims where the other Sims in the world are your friends and your peers, but instead of just having a, uh, you know, a single dimension or kind of the you know, Facebook where I'm communicating through text and images, this is where you'd actually have kind of a, a digital representation of yourself and interact in a more meaningful way and uh, a very free, um, a free world. So, Facebook, there's very limited actions you can take. You can post, you can go on the market, like they have a specific use cases versus many others think that the metaverse is like what we do today. You're kind of under your own free will. You can interact with different people as you please. And um, we're really curious to see how that looks for education. Um, but hopefully that, you know, closes that tie while you're sitting at home learning. Uh, you can actually feel closer to your peers and closer to your instructors and closer to the content. Yeah, more of that later about the potential isolation of um, the dominant, if you like, preponderance of technology in education. Uh, before we do any of that, let's take a step back, if we may, just to, uh, as I said before, democratize the process. So you're talking about Web 2.0 and Web 3.0. So um, for people who aren't that familiar with, with terms like these, um, you said that Scholar is a Web 3.0 application. Um, so my question really is, uh, how is this a development from what we called Web 2.0, and when will we when will we know that we're we've reached Web 4.0? What will that look like? It's a great question. So just to kind of define a couple terms here, to me, um, you know, there's basically the gen the growth of Web 1, 2 to 3. So Web 1, think about the very early kind of the mid 90s. Your very basic browsers where you're getting connected to information, and you're more so just a kind of a recipient. You're kind of a consumer of the content. Web2 brought in a few different things. More so, what we'd like to say is that social connectivity and user-generated content. Think about social media platforms where you're actually contributing as well as consuming. Um, this is also, we've seen a lot of this kind of called the mobile era of um, the, the web. So everything can be in the palm of your hand. You can do your shopping, et cetera. Um, to talk a little bit now about what we're building in Web3, there's two really big elements that define Web3 from Web2. First and foremost would be decentralization. Um, as we think about Web2 today, there are these massive technology companies, call it the Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, um, that we all know that control the majority of the flow of the information. They control the majority of uh, kind of how you're consuming it and kind of the, the, the roadmap for that. 
decentralization is kind of an answer in the opposite where the the community is leading the development where these what we call protocols instead of a company um, kind of have a mission and a vision but we're building it together all of it's done in a very um, democratic process so if we want to build something as a community we vote on doing that and so the idea is to take away some of that centralized power and distribute it back to the kind of the community and the users um, this has a really big implication for sure in finance. I think that's where, you know, kind of cryptocurrency is built from instead of going to a centralized bank or going to um, some of these larger financial institutions. Now we have a decentralized network of uh, kind of money and lending options. So instead of going to a bank, I can go to a decentralized tool, um, what's called DeFi or decentralized finance, um, where we're rewarding communities uh, instead of kind of these larger organizations. So a lot of really cool implications. Um, as far as Web4, I'm not 100% sure what that will look like. Um, I think that as the, the metaverse and this AR, uh, augmented reality and virtual reality environments develop, I think we may see even a, another generation of um, development there. But we're excited about Web3. I think we've probably got another five to 10 years of innovation here. Uh, and once that adoption curve is stronger in the metaverse and virtual reality plays, I think that'll open the door for even more. Yeah, we, we'd, we'd expect Web 4.0 to be really sort of supercharged by AI, wouldn't we, and machine learning. And of course, we're starting to get there with uh, with your proposal for within their Web 3.0, aren't we? Um, again, to say, take a step sideways as opposed to backwards, um, let's talk uh, blockchain again, just to um, so that everybody's clear on the relevance of this to education. So uh, can I read a, a, a definition uh, for, you, for you of a definition of blockchain from, from uh, Pandley, who was a an Indian uh, scholar. Uh, so um, he says uh, blockchain is an immutable decentralized database, a chain of blocks which store information such as transactions, dates, times, amounts, and or participants. Um, so that's what Pandley says in 2021. Each block within the blockchain stores a hash of the previous block. A hash function takes an input of variable length and produces an output of fixed length. This way, hashing um, within the blockchain uh, makes it very difficult to change previous blocks, thus ensuring immutability and uniqueness, I suppose. Uh, so um, are you okay with that definition? Anything that you would add or take away? Yeah, no, I think that's actually a really all-encompassing view of what blockchain is. And, uh, you know, for, for those that are listening that aren't super familiar, some of that's a very high level. I know we talk about hashes and blocks. Um, but what I like to, to encourage people to think about is a common ledger. It's, uh, you know, we all agree that these are the, the transactions or the events that have taken place in the past, and we all have visibility to that. So it's kind of that, that trustless and permissionless feeling where, um, we all have a common database. We're all looking at the same data and we all agree that it's, uh, you know, the truth. So it's that, that ultimate accountability and visibility um, that really um, is the biggest delineating factor between Web 2 and Web 3. So good, you know, good, good definition. Just like to bring it down a little bit lower for, I know if, uh, you know, some people listening are the hashes and blocks do get confusing. Okay, so um, now without getting too sort of political or too utopian about the whole um, process, about what you're striving for, um, think about what, what, we're, what we're challenging here. So, you know, if, if a DeFi is obviously decentralized, then uh, in what ways would the centralization of uh, student finance a problem? Yeah, so, um, you know, if we take a look at today, and I'll definitely speak from, uh, you know, a US-centric um, area, majority of student loans come from federal and they're actually federally guaranteed. So the centralization does a few things. One, um, the, the biggest issue is that it's 
kind of unregulated, unchecked. There's not a ton of competition um, being that is coming from one source. The second is that um, the student debt is something that you take with you to your grave. You know, the only way to get out of it uh, by declaring bankruptcy, it still sticks with you. Uh, as well as, you know, the only way out is, is through death. And so it can really put people in a, a tough spot. Um, the other thing is since it is tied to kind of your credit, this actually has people kind of delay it. since it's tied in sponsored by the government, the centralization, they're also the people that do some of the, uh, for example, mortgages and private business loans. And so by having the student debt and being delinquent on it, um, you can actually set yourself back in terms of growing your family, start buying a home or, or a business. And so that centralization kind of gives all that all that power there. So, you know, the lack of innovation and competition to um, the second is that they have that visibility and the connectivity to other elements of your finances. Mm, OK, so previously, um, I mean, some people have said that that system, that model, um, that centralized model was something of a, of a con. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, there, there's major critiques. And uh, to talk a little bit, uh, you know, specifically about the problem that Scholar solves, um, what we're focusing in on is not necessarily student debt and offering loans. While those are on our roadmap, our initial focus is actually on scholarships and charitable giving within academia. Um, if we look at, you know, some of the issues of the centralized um you know, money managers, there's a few issues. And so in the US and a and majority of around the world, um, the money that universities use to fund their operations, fund students, et cetera, is run through an endowment. If we take a look at these academic endowments, these centralized endowments, there's a few issues. One, um, they're very underperforming. So uh, on average, they return around 5.2%, which in the US is subject to inflation, uh, many other things. The other element is that they also take a very high overhead. And so the, the combination of low performance and a high overhead means that the money that is donated um, does not go as far as you know, we would hope it would. The second issue is that these, since it is a centralized authority managing the money, they also manage how that money is spent. And so while me as a donor, I could say, maybe I wanna sponsor you know, women in STEM or black engineers, and I make that stipulation as I donate my money, ultimately it's up to the endowment on how that's spent. So instead of sponsoring students that could go to uh, building a new sports complex, it could go to bonuses, it could go to many different things. Uh, and so you kind of take that that trust and you take that um, that empowerment away from donors when it's in a centralized fashion. Mm. So would I be right, right in saying that, you know, more broadly, the whole DeFi system is a lot more ethical, if you like, than the, the old centralized uh, systems where really it's about the community, that the, the community is, is more profitable if it's stronger together and everybody's contributing towards that community as opposed to taking what they can for themselves. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the power of blockchain and the power of Web3 is what we call peer-to-peer -peer networks, where I'm, instead of engaging through a middleman, engaging through an endowment, uh, donors in our system can actually connect directly to students, find them and make that decision for themselves. So peer-to-peer -peer networks, um, you know, enable a lot of things. And the, what we like to say is that they're trustless, meaning I don't need to trust the middleman since I'm, you know, doing a transaction between me and another person. Uh, and that, that, that's really powerful. So we think it's definitely more democratic, more equitable. Um, and I think that's the future um, as we move forward. Excellent. So let's take it from the point of view of a, a student then. So if I'm a student and I'm looking for a scholarship, so uh, how do I get started? What do I expect? What are the, uh, let's do a sort of mini SWOT analysis, what are the strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats for me as, as a student? 
Yeah, awesome. So, you know, I can definitely relate to this. I graduated in 2019. Uh, so just recently went, went through this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, it's been a, an interesting journey after that. But as a student, traditionally, what it looks like to find a scholarship is that um, they may be offered from your university. They may be offered from private money. Um, and it's oftentimes really, really hard to actually track down reliable sources of scholarships to apply to. Um, so there are different platforms that serve as kind of aggregators saying we collect all the scholarships. You can apply to them in a very simple way. Um, and but right now that's not super highly adopted. So that's kind of where our original platform was born, Scholarful. Um, right now, there's around 2000, 3000 different scholarships on there that you can fill out your profile, meaning this is who I am. These are my needs. This is my cultural background, my academic background, mission and vision. Uh, and what we do is essentially match that to donor provided scholarships that have those same criteria. Again, I'll kind of go back to the examples of maybe I am a, a woman in STEM seeking scholarships. Well, now there's a donor on the other side that also wants to sponsor that particular niche of students and we connect them uh, in that peer to peer fashion. Um, so that that's a really unique thing. So what we like to do is that we for students, we make that scholarship application process much, much simpler. You only have to fill out your profile once and then to apply to scholarships, it's one click. Um, and so by doing that, one, we save you a ton of time Two, get you uh, access to a lot more scholarships. So just the volume you're applied to uh, is much larger. And then three, um, the really exciting part is that as part of our platform, when you fill out your profile, you actually do create a, um, a cryptocurrency wallet as well. So we actually have some of this Web3 education, getting people comfortable and familiar with what it means to kind of leverage cryptocurrency, leverage blockchain and digital assets, too. So we connect them, you know, as a student, it's multi-beneficial. One, you have a much better chance of receiving a scholarship in a much faster way. But two, you also get kind of immersed into the Web3 world in a, a really kind of meaningful and, you know, kind of we walk with you instead of saying, here, go learn. Because it is a, an intimidating world if you don't, um, you know, have that background or passion. Yeah. And so th th I'm sorry to, to um, bring this up because it's, it's quite sort of um, the sensationalist, if you like, about crypto in general. But there was, I'm thinking about some parents who are involved in this process, supporting their children, uh, maybe quite fearful about crypto. They may be saying that, you know, don't invest in crypto because uh, your wallet will disappear or you'll be hacked. And um, it's a very volatile market. So what would you say to reassure parents who are being um, very supportive of their, of their children getting involved in this? Yeah. So, you know, more than I hear those kind of critiques all the time. And my, my biggest rebuttal is, you know, looking at the current state of what money means and uh, some of your money management. In my opinion, uh, you know, you also hear the term like crypto is sometimes used for nefarious acts. But in fact, uh, the U.S. dollars use it, I want to say, a three to four times as often for that. Um, as far as from a security standpoint, it's all those things we talked about before. It's on the blockchain. We can, you know, if there's any nefarious acts, we can see that, um, you know, on the blockchain to kind of circumvent that. The other thing is that we're held to the same exact standards of these large social media platforms. So when you trust your data with the Facebook, Apple, all these other ones, we're held to the same standards, if not higher, um, from a regulatory and security standpoint. Uh, and then the last piece, as far as like uh, the volatility. So that's also something that's on our mind. Uh, and as you look at cryptocurrencies, there's certainly volatility, but at the same time, there are other, you know, solutions within it that are not volatile. Something that we use, so the majority, you know, what we do is take in funds, supercharge them, uh, you know, kind of make them go further. But we do that using stable coins, meaning that the stable coin is tied to the U.S. dollar, uh, that asset never goes up or down. 
And so, you know, my, my answer is, you know, the, the, we take a lot of risk up front uh, and a lot of on the security side to make sure that everything is kosher. And then on the kind of the volatility side, we do stay away from volatile assets and try to deliver, you know, high performing, stable assets to our users. Excellent. So um, that's the student side. So what about the donor side? So if I want to become a donor and I'm not uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Bob Dylan, well, um, <laughs> how, do I, how do I get involved? Great question. And so we actually have a number of uh, solutions for our donors, depending on uh, how big of an impact they'd like to make, how much they'd like to donate. Um, I'll start with kind of our, our core use case. Um, what we do is for these donors that want to establish a larger fund and pay scholarships out of it routinely. Um, this is traditionally the donors that you'd see contributing to universities. Um, in our platform, it's very simple. They fill out their profile with the same information. Um, and then as part of that process, they also create a wallet or a, basically a, a contract that holds their funds. So they fill out their information, create this all on the back end. Uh, and then the next step is that, so say I donated $100,000 and I wanted to pay scholarships out of it. The next thing we would do is actually connect that to what we call a yield partner, a yield protocol. Yield is essentially just kind of think of how this money would grow. So I you know, donate $100,000 connect it to one of our yield partners for those in the crypto space. Our big ones are Circle. Um, so just a little bit of background on Circle. Circle is used by Kevin O'Leary and the O'Leary Fund. Uh, you know, definitely seeing that Wall Street adoption. Uh, Anchor Protocol, you know, I won't exhaust that list too much, but essentially these very reliable stablecoin networks that any earn anywhere from six to around 15% um, yield. So obviously that, that blows some of the you know, traditional endowments out of the water. And what that does is that makes the donor's money go further. So after they've basically by clicking one button, say, I wanna connect it to this protocol, um, we do that on the back end, And then the next step is to issue a scholarship. So they funded it. Now they can say, okay, I wanna look at um, funding a particular students. Like we had said, these different niches, maybe it's a, you know, a, a female studying social studies, however they'd like to do that. Maybe it's at a particular alma mater. They have that complete control uh, over who should be receiving it. Um, we have a ton of criteria and then use AI to match that to our, our students and get them a very short curated list. So they can publish their scholarship, have it open for as long as they please. Traditionally, that's around two to three weeks. We give them a short list of the top candidates, which is around 10 tip typically saying these are the top students that have applied to your scholarship, and then we allow them to choose the winner. Um, once they've chose the winner, we take care of the rest. Um, we essentially take that money out of their donor advised fund, um, the one that's connected to the, the DeFi yields, and go through the student's university to issue that money. Originally, we had thought about issuing the money directly to the student in case they wanted to use it for things like rent or um, you know, other kind of cost of living expenses. Um, but given, you know, we would like to run it through the university to make sure that's actually going towards their education and build that level of trust with our donors that it's going uh, a strong way. So something that is exciting about our platform is kind of the marketing and the, you know, the really the meaning, what it means for these donors. So a requirement for our students that receive scholarships is that they do a thank you video. Uh, and so to kind of close the loop on that peer to peer feeling, a donor actually gets a thank you video, gets to see that money in action and feel a lot closer to um, you know, the students' lives that they're impacting versus in a, a traditional endowment, you donate the money, they shake your hand and say, thank you. Um, you know, it's, a, you know, not a very satisfying thing. And as you actually look at the 2021 global giving report, um, the number one reason people give is not actually tax breaks. It's that they want to feel closer connected to a social cause and feel like they're making uh, a positive impact in the world. 
And so we feel our platform does that much stronger. We get, connect them directly to students uh, and close the loop there with uh, some of those meaningful stories. Very cool. This is so interesting. Honestly, I really appreciate this, uh, Ted. Um, finally, you've had a very interesting trip to Istanbul recently. Yeah. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, absolutely. So I know uh, we, we had missed our initial recording date, and I apologize for that. But uh, we actually uh, were in Istanbul, Turkey, raising money for the project. Um, we have a really extensive network. Our, so by building this Web 2.0 platform, um, we've kind of had some global presence, understanding where these needs lie. Traditionally, you hear the student debt crisis, and everyone thinks that's definitely a U.S.-centric problem. Um, but unfortunately, we're seeing that trend grow across the world. So through kind of our, our business network, um, you know, had some partners in Turkey that were very interested in the project. And so went there, um, talked to them, did some fundraising, of course, for the project, raising money um, for in order for to, to you know, kind of give them tokens in return. But upon that, we also realized that there's a lot of opportunity to kind of scale this at a global level, whether that be, um, you know, kind of instituting these call it scholar turkey where you know turkish students can actually come in find scholarships for traditional universities certificate-based learning and start to learn web3 um so you know it's just you know unfortunate that it's a glowing global problem but happy that we have a solution that we can scale uh the last kind of quick comments i'll make about turkey is that i know uh in the us you know cryptocurrency is still kind of on the fringe not everyone is completely comfortable and familiar uh, you know, I don't know if that's the same globally, but particularly in Turkey, everyone uh, is using crypto. It's kind of been their, their safe haven and actually really empowering and enabling for people there uh, as their, their currency has faced some kind of volatility, as well as they have just a very large mixing of cultures and kind of financing happening there. So crypto has actually become that, that common glue for them financially and been really empowering for them and uh, adopted anyway from, you know, these large investors we're talking to down to the cab driver and kind of shop owners. Um, leveraging and accepting crypto as well. So really far along that curve and adoption. And so that's why we're really excited to work with them too and see what does the future look like. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the US and the UK have this myth that the currency is very stable. Um, certainly in the UK, we think, oh, it's the British pound. It's very stable. And, and you know, the US dollar is very stable. And of course, that's partly true. But is it really... I think it's a, really it's a great question. And it's, uh, you know, my, uh, so a little bit of background before I joined this project, I was working at a large company in the US called Boston Scientific, around 30,000 employees making medical device devices for your brain, your heart, etc. And when I made the jump from that job into this one into web three and a, a startup, uh, you know, got a lot of critique and saying crypto is not real, you can't even hold it in your hand, it's not backed by anything. Um, but if you kind of uncover, you know, the, the logistics of the U.S. dollar, you start to find some of the same tendencies, the, uh, you know, the fractional backing. And, you know, there's a, you know, it's it's kind of the pot calling the, the kettle black sometimes, uh, the, some of the critiques of crypto. So I, I just really found it really inspiring the how liberating it was a, a really cool example and kind of a, uh, a relevant would be some of the Ukrainian refugees coming to Turkey. Um you know, their money is not necessarily good, but when they arrive there with things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, that's universally accepted. So it's kind of that the global currency that empowers people uh, that would never have access to finances, you know, the unbanked refugees, et cetera. It's really been liberating and powerful uh, to see that adoption and see how it's helped them. That's right. And some people couldn't actually get their own money out of banks from, from Ukraine, could they? So uh, yeah, empowering indeed. 
Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ted. This, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. And what I really love about it is just how these, I suppose, hot button topics, these buzz words and buzz phrases uh, like DeFi and crypto and Web 3.0 and so on and so on, um, are, you, we're seeing them in action, you know, and, and for the for the purposes of, of good, you know, for something very positive for, for young people and in, in the, the context of education. So uh, thank you so much for that uh, inspiration. Absolutely. Thank you for the, the opportunity to, to kind of get the message out. And we're excited to, uh, to scale and grow this. So any students listening, check it out, scholar.io and uh, apply to scholarships very soon. We launch here at the end of May with our, our next generation. So we're excited. You had it here first. Thank you, Ted. You take care. Thank you. Thank you. That was Ted Zipoy, a true EdTech innovator. pretty mind-blowing wasn't it until next time see you later and take care of yourself